I'm thrilled to announce that TSK has returned as headline sponsor for another season. We all see that the world of work has changed. We've seen a true workplace revolution in the last few years. The line between work and life is blurred. We believe the fundamentals of this change is here to stay. When you're a leader in that environment, you're probably having those ongoing questions through the uncertainty, questions around how we can draw people back to the workplace, how we can stay competitive, where are staff supposed to work, and we measure office utilization. How do we transition into hybrid working? How do we maintain the company culture and how much space do we actually need? Why do we even need an office? TSK has spent over two decades helping some of the world's biggest brands to create inspiring places to work for their people. Working with them to create robust workplace strategies, creative design solutions, and quality built environments. TSK's track record is impressive and we wanted to share some of those insights and stories with our listeners here on the Workable Podcast. Well-known global brand, Kellogg's, has always maintained their values for a concrete and positive company culture, expressing this as hashtag like at K. This was most important at the Dublin offices, home of the Kellogg's European headquarters. In 2019, TSK, our headline sponsor, began working with Kellogg's to realize their dream workplace to help their local and European community thrive. But then an unforeseen global event turned the project on its head. More on that later in the show. Welcome back to the Work Bowl podcast, where we chat with the leaders in commercial real estate to answer all questions, space as a service. This podcast is for anyone involved in commercial real estate in any way. If you're an investor, fund manager, developer, property manager, agent, or broker, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. I'm your host, Caleb Parker, and this is Episode 9 of Season 8, sponsored by TSK. If you're not already a subscriber to commercial real estate publication PropMoto, this episode should convince you to sign up today. I'm joined by Franco Ferraldo, PropMoto co-founder and editor, to unpack one of his recent articles. I think we can all agree there's concern with the economic volatility right now, especially as interest rates rise. Franco tells us how this will affect office real estate specifically. And we go on to discuss how the increasing cost of capital may shake up the capital stack for the office. To tease that out, you're going to hear why lenders may not have the same appetite for offices, how investor profiles may evolve, and whether a valuation reset is imminent. Naturally, I use this opportunity to find out whether space as a service could be the unsung hero for the office. Now, as always, if you have any questions or feedback, or topics you won't cover, hit me up on Twitter at Caleb underscore Parker or DM me on LinkedIn. Earlier in the show, we introduced the beginning of a workplace transformation for Kellogg's European headquarters. To tell you more about that story, let's hear from the design and build team behind the project, TSK. Our existing relationship with Kellogg's spanned back to 2018 when we designed and delivered their world-class UK head offices in Manchester. We were ready to raise the bar in Dublin, building a strategy to see the team move from two buildings into one unified, open plan and connected space at Dublin Airport. The design had been agreed, work was already underway, then COVID hit. Headlines like, the office is dead, is remote working here to stay, were circulating and businesses around the globe were reconsidering what the purpose of the office was for them. But if anything, it solidified the work we were about to do. 
We wanted to create a space which is more representative of our brand, the way we've innovated and changed in the market. We wanted our offices to look and feel like that as well. It sort of comes back to our four C's about connection, creativity, culture and collaboration. Around the world, thousands of smart people funded by billions of dollars of strategic investment are working to change the way real estate is used and transacted. These entrepreneurs, technologists, and investors are working to create a smarter, more efficient built environment. My guest in this episode is Franco Ferraudo, co-founder and editor of PropMoto, and he's shining a light on the disruptors and the changes taking place in commercial real estate. Franco has an MBA in entrepreneurship and has been involved in both commercial and residential real estate as an agent and investor. PropMoto helps us understand the changing real estate landscape enabling us to make smarter decisions about which technologies to adopt, keeping scalability and adaptability in mind. Franco and his team help us uncover the value propositions and emergent technologies and how they align with the needs of property stakeholders and office customers, also known as tenants. I've been a subscriber for a few years now. I've shared PropMoto articles on LinkedIn, retweeted their content, and even made an appearance in the article, It Takes a Village to Create a Flexible Office, Led by Quartz, Melanie Jones. Thank you, Melanie. I was reading a recent article titled, What Will the Fed's Response to Inflation Do to the Office Market? I thought this needs to be shared far and wide. So I invited Franco to join me to have a chat and talk through some of his points. First, I want to recognize that our audience spans the globe with listeners in over 50 countries. But often what happens in the United States is not isolated to those 50 states. And we see parallels in our industry everywhere. So... Thank you, Franco, for being here today, and welcome to the Workbull Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to chat. Absolutely, and looking forward to diving into this article. But I should also add the disclaimer that neither Franco or myself are economists, so don't take this as direct financial advice. You know, we got to cover off this legal bitch, <laughs> but never want to get any kind of crazy lawsuits. But yeah, let's get started. Okay, so yes or no answer first, Franco. Do you expect rising interest rates to negatively affect office real estate? So I'm going to say yes, but I'm going to give a caveat. I think uh, from what I've learned, you know, it's really hard to paint the entire office real estate with a single brush, right? I think what we have seen from the pandemic, kind of post-pandemic, is that, you know, some office real estate is, is doing rather well and others is really struggling. So I think... Yes, there's certainly going to be an impact, but I don't think that impact is going to be felt uh, universally across the office real estate market. Okay. Well, maybe we'll dive into that a little bit more. In the article, you say rising interest rates are one of the main issues facing the property industry today, and no property sector is watching more closely than the office. So can we get some more context behind that? Yeah. I mean, office is having is struggling, right? There's no surprise to anybody that you know, the pandemic work from home, all of the stuff that everyone has been talking about for a couple of years is certainly affecting the office market, right? We have lots of uh, buildings that are being renegotiated right now and a lot of uh, tenants that are deciding they don't need an office or maybe need less office. So they're already in a, you know, a tough spot, a lot of office owners and, and operators. Adding fuel to that fire is you know, both the kind of coming recession and the interest rates that might be dragging us there. So I think they are, uh, everyone is looking at this, right? I think everyone in the world is thinking about it. And, you know, I, I recognize that, uh, you know, this is a global podcast and, you know, our readership is pretty global too, but this is, this isn't a uniquely American thing, right? This inflation is being felt everywhere. I think 
our response to the inflation, which is, you know, kind of the Fed driving interest rates up, is the thing that is affecting the entire world, right? Because there's a lot that kind of gets piggybacked on top of that rate. And so that interest rate going up, in the article, you rightly point out that interest rates have been low for a long time. And now we're sort of getting back to what they used to be. So why is this causing an issue now? I think, you know, we've kind of set, we've been anchored, right? Our, our position has been anchored on this low interest rate. I think we've kind of grown accustomed to it, maybe even reliant on it. You know, you could argue a bad way, right? So much of the crazy growth in real estate prices, you know, all of the things happening kind of in the arguably overheating economy is because of this low interest rate. I mean, we had, you know, what is it now? 12, 15 years of just historically low interest rate. And, you know, I, I think back to after the 2008 financial crisis, you know, when they had to drop the rate and everybody kept, you know, they started printing money and quantitative easing and all of the other things. People kept saying, well, this is, you know, inflation is, is going to hit. Inflation is going to hit. And it's almost like after we said it so many times and it didn't happen, people kind of stopped talking about it, right? It's like, that's the the boogeyman goes away after a while and you forget about it. And then that is when they become the most dangerous, right? Is because people kind of start to think that it, it doesn't exist. And so no, no, no part of the economy kind of lives in a vacuum. So you can't print all this money and do all these other things without eventually it coming back to you. Although I will say, interestingly, that from the economists I did talk to about this, you know, there's there's two ways to think about inflation. You kind of have to break them up, right? There's like the nominal inflation, which is that kind of, you know, what is the, the supply and demand of your currency, right? That's what everybody kind of thought. If you print all this money, your supply goes up and, uh, you know, you can't maybe meet the demand. And so you're, you're going to get nominal inflation. And I think that didn't really happen as much as people predicted. I think one, the money we printed didn't all get put into circulation. Two, there's still a hell of a demand for American T-bills, right? As things get crazy in the world, I think that is still, there's a lot of trust in, you know, American money and the American system that, that has driven the demand up, right? Like, you know, prices for T-bills kept staying low. And so, okay, there's obviously that's a sign that there is plenty, plenty of demand. But the other piece of inflation is this kind of CPI part of the inflation, right? This is like, you're actually what you can buy with your money. And this has as much to do with, you know, kind of price parity as it does with global flows of capital. And a lot of that stuff is completely outside of the Fed's responsibility and, you know, the Fed's power. And, you know, I think it's it's wrong to maybe blame them for all this inflation, right? We had huge supply chain hit. We, you know, we had this pandemic and everything that kind of went with that. So there's a lot of this stuff happening right now. When you look at where inflation's coming from, and I'm sure we can get into that later, a lot of it is really kind of isolated pieces that don't necessarily have to do with, with printing money, but are certainly still important, right? We still feel them just as if our currency was devalued. Okay. So I understand inflation causes prices to go up. I understand that in a business plan for real estate, when you're buying properties and redeveloping them, the cost of doing that goes up because of inflation. That's a massive impact. But going back to the interest rates, because of the way most of the business plans in real estate and buying and developing property is reliant on debt. If the cost of debt goes up as well, that becomes a massive issue. Is that right? Absolutely. Right. Like that's kind of where I started the research for this piece, right? Is like, what's going on with the cost of debt? And from the outside looking in, you think, oh, this is just going to crush 
the entire real estate industry, but probably particularly the office real estate industry, which is struggling in, in its own ways, because no one's going to be able to afford property more. I think we kind of associate this with our ourselves, right? Like our own, like, oh my God, when my mortgage rates go up, it, it becomes so much harder to afford my house. And so what I learned is that it's, that's not a perfect analogy, right? Because when we have our houses, right? Like we directly feel that cost, right? We also cannot buy a house, right? We can decide to rent. But when you're looking at commercial real estate, particularly office, right? Which has, you know, class A office has a lot of bigger institutional investors. They, they have a mandate, right? These people have to invest money and it's not like they can just sit on it, right? And interestingly, the higher inflation actually makes it, increases that mandate, right? Like I, I really can't sit on money now, right? I need to de- deploy this. Yeah, because it's losing value the longer you sit on it, right? Exactly. Every day, you know, you know you're someone's, and you know, when you're looking at, you know, you, your investors have given you this money, they are looking for a return. You also have to think about how this works. Like most investment firms, right? They make money off of the money that is given to them, right? So they need to grow that pool of capital. That's the only way that they grow their size. And so it does nothing for them to just sit on the capital that they have, even though it might, you know, uh, maybe if we wait, we can you know, find a great deal or something, right? Generally, what they are trying to do is put money out in order to get more money in, right? That's, that's how they grow. And so when you, you look at these companies, they, w- w- the great quote that I got from someone from this is, you know, the, the most real estate shops, like they're, they're not in the business of predicting interest rates, right? What they're in the business of is finding deals that pencil. And so if they can find a deal that still pencils at these higher interest rates, they will make it. They're not going to like him and Han say, well, you know, we could have got it if we would have waited, or maybe we can wait another six months or another two years for the race to come back down. No, it's not worth it for them. They'd rather put this money into, you know, into use, get these deals moving. And, you know, maybe they make a little bit less money, but whatever, like we just, you know, they don't make any less money. I would argue that their principles maybe make a little bit less money because these deals are no longer that valuable, but the same time, you know, that's what these principles have given them money to do. So they they will understand, right? These are things of an, above and beyond any kind of acquisition shop, and everyone's playing on the same playing field. Better to make less money than than lose money, I guess. Yeah, exactly, right. And and so it's it's really interesting where like you know there what there does not seem to be this kind of hey let's let's sit around, let's sit on our hands and wait and the, and the prices will come back down like you might kind of see in residential. Okay, so I'm going to paraphrase a, a, a quote you did of, from uh, the principal at Avis and Young's Tri-State Debt and Equity Finance, Scott Singer. He talks about there being plenty of capital and this is basically what you're saying just now. There's plenty of capital out there waiting to be deployed. So is that supply of cash actually offsetting the new cost of debt? Is that helping? I wouldn't say it's offsetting the cost of debt, but it's certainly changing where the debt is coming from a bit. So it's another kind of tricky thing about trying to compare the commercial real estate industry to the residential, right? Which residential is a lot more understandable, right? You can say, hey, here's the average mortgage rate, right? We hear it on the news every day. Well, there's no average mortgage rate for a commercial mortgage, right? Because first of all, there's such a huge queue in you know, these buildings are so different. And also 
there's a huge skew. They're not all kind of 30 year conforming loans, right? There's a lot of different things that go into it, but also there's a lot of different providers, right? And so, you know, you have the traditional providers, which is banks, and then you have these kind of debt funds. And interestingly, the skew between the price, generally the banks are the cheapest and they kind of, you know, the debt funds kind of take on riskier loans. And so therefore they are a little bit more expensive. And so the skew between the banks and the debt funds right now is one of the lowest it's ever been. And I think some of the reason for that is, is one, what I said, these debt funds, they have a mandate, right? They, ha- they have to get this money out. They want to grow where banks, uh, they have plenty of other ways that they, they can make money. And so they can kind of pause lending in a way that these debt funds can't, because that's the only reason they exist is to, to push capital into the, the market. So do you think that as these rates are going up, the lenders, I mean, I think, I think it, you said actually that the lenders might not always have the same appetite for loans now in office buildings. Why is that? So lenders, when I say lenders in, in that context, I'm particularly talking about the banks. Yep. Uh, a really interesting piece of this is, is you know, it's so funny because the more, it, this seems like such an, an easy question, right? Like, oh, interest rates going up means bad for office. Yes. Well, it, you know, it's very nuanced, right? So on one hand, like I said, this doesn't affect the debt, you know, kind of funds much. They're they're happy to to keep pushing this money out. Banks, on the other hand, are looking at a changing profit margin that is affecting the way that they think about this, right? So usually there's kind of, you know, it used to be the LIBOR, but now it's uh, the kind of a, a overnight rate. Usually there's a, a fixed rate and then they kind of, you know, they they bid, let's say 2% above that. And so when the mortgage rates are low, they're actually making a lot of money, right? Because they're, le- they're leasing out at, at 2%. And they're getting 2%. So you could argue like that's almost like kind of a 100% kind of margin they are getting off of the rate. Well, as the rate goes up, let's say the rate is at 10%, right? Well, so they're adding 2% on top of that. And that's only a 20% margin, right? So they're looking at this interesting kind of flux of, all right, where's our risk at? How much are we getting off of this you know, money that we're putting out? And so, yeah, you do see some capital, particularly banks, pulling back. But like I said, that those are you know only one piece of the lending infrastructure. And for every bank that seems to be pulling back, there are certainly debt funds that are that are still willing to to put money out there. Well, this brings me up to an, an, another topic or related topic, I think. And um, we see that the demand for space as a service is growing. We obviously talk about that on every episode almost. And, you know, the predictions out there of that taking up 30% of the footprints uh, in the future, I predict that it would go up to 70% in the next 10 years. If any of that happens, that means that there's going to be more revenue not wrapped into long-term leases, which is what the banks want and arguably what most lenders would want. Combine that with the rise in interest rates, inflation. Do you think that We'll see the capital stack of the real estate business plan evolve. Will we see different investor profiles come into this? Will business plans change to increase the debt equity to debt ratio in transactions? What's your view on all this? That's a tough one. I think that the so I I think we you're pointing to a, a bit of a fundamental flaw in the way we value buildings, right? Is that we value buildings based on their 
long-term ability, like their long-term leases, basically, their long-term ability to create a revenue stream. And unfortunately, the way we value buildings now does not really consider, you know, short-term leases, flexible space as part of that, right? And so your revenue from your flexible space often doesn't get kind of thrown into the line item of, of your 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 revenue and therefore doesn't become a multiple for uh, for your capitalization rate, right? So I, I think a little short-sighted for a couple of reasons. One, I think you could probably point to the robustness of the flexible space industry. Particularly, I think that in bad economic times, you can maybe, I've, I've heard of it kind of considered as like our, our bumper Right. Uh, I talked to the head of uh, kind of Boston Properties, flexible spaces, and that's what they look at. It's like, yeah, we realize this isn't maybe as useful for us as a long term lease, but it really is a great bumper when we have bad times or, or, or kind of clients that are not really sure if they want to have an office. We can give them a little bit of peace of mind by you know carving out some space in that. Two, I, I do think that this is a really important amenity. For a lot of companies going forward, I think that if you have a flexible space uh, in the same building as a company has their traditional leased space, that it can give them a bit, a bit of peace of mind, certainly, that they can, you know, if they do grow past their lease, that they have a space for their people. But it can also just provide a, a, a good amenity for them, you know, if who knows what happens in the future, you know, they, they can have a, a little bit of that same bumper idea of like, okay, we, we know we have a, we can put our people in a place, even if, you know, we sublease our space or, or do something else like that. So I certainly think that flex space is, is set to grow. Uh, you know, unfortunately it is, that is a big headwind is the way that lenders look at it. And I've always thought it, uh, it is short-sighted because, you know, we can, we can put notes on hotels, right? That's a short-term lease. That's even a shorter term than month-to-month kind of flexible lease. But for some reason, we don't apply that same calculation to flexible space. And I think one, I think that lenders just, you know, they're conforming to what they've always done. They have processes, they have forms that they don't want to change, right? It's a little bit of an added risk. Two, I also think that there's not a lot of data out there. I think when uh, lenders lend on hotels, they can look at, all right, what's the average occupancy rate for a hotel in Midtown? Okay, so we can kind of gauge, you know, based on that, what, you know, what we can expect from this, where that doesn't exist, right? There's not a lot of good data. There's starting to be some, but there's still not a lot of good data sources where a lender can say, okay, well, what's the average occupancy for a flex space in in midtown manhattan and and then maybe we can apply some sort of a discount on the revenues uh that way yeah it's it is there's a lot of complexities to it i think a lot of it is this is the way we've always done it and uh i think we can learn a lot from the hotel industry we've said that several times on this podcast as well i I can't tell you how many times the landlords that that we work with questions come up all the time when we're doing business plans for them where what sort of valuation impact is the space as a service footprint going to have having flex, having revenue come to a flex revenue stream. They're looking, always looking for evidence of increased ERVs because the space as a service is there and you know, what customers are wanting. And uh, ultimately I'm coming to the conclusion that 
it's not so much about the valuation per se. It's more about the NOI and the, the volatility trade-off, which obviously valuation kind of ignores if you think about it, because if customers don't want to be in long leases anymore and your building's not attractive, then that's going to affect the valuation, isn't it? it you, you'd think. But there's a trend of, of lenders having a negative view on this non-lease income. And I, I think the, the trick right now uh, until this changes is that as long as the footprint is not in a long lease, as long as that percentage is of, of, of the overall asset is less than the percentage of, of debt to equity ratio, then I think things tend to be okay. But yeah, it's, it's just an interesting one. I, I, I put out a call on LinkedIn the other day that I've got a, a, a podcast episode seat ready and warm for any lender that's leaning into this. So I would ask you, Franco, to encourage you to, if you see anything out there, if you talk with anybody in your, in your interviews, please shine light on this. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think that it might, I think that there were and going to have a continued bumpy road here. I think one of the changes that I have heard is that lenders now are one, lowering their kind of loan to value standards, right? They don't, they are not willing to lend on as much in case we do see a bit of a uh, valuation pullback. I've even heard some lenders kind of looking at more, maybe loan to cost, things like that. And so if we continue to not consider flexible revenue or flexible space revenue in the, you know, in the calculation, it's going to, it's going to be hard, right? Because we we're seeing less, less money kind of being put towards, towards those buildings as far as debt goes. Yes, indeed. Well, I, I have to, at this moment, give a shout out to Sam Gamble. He, he had a, about two years ago now, he put out a video, YouTube, talking about new ways of valuing buildings based on including the space as a service and flexible revenue and in, in flexible agreements. He's got a couple of videos out now. I'll put the link in the show notes to this episode. But yeah, no, thank you for entertaining that. And um, thank you for sharing your insights here, Franco. Well, before we close it out, uh, is there anything else you've noticed that, that we can leave some insights with the audience today? Yeah, I think uh, the kind of final fold of complication that I, I came across for this that I thought was really fascinating was the possibility that this inflation, you know, the, this kind of the Fed's interest rates and everything happening right now can can benefit the office market, right? And so the Fed has specifically said, like, they're not particularly worried about gas prices, right? Energy prices, cost of goods, all of those things that are part of the contributing factors to the increasing CPI. They're worried about labor costs, right? They particularly want to slow the labor market down. I mean, anybody who's hired uh, recently knows like there's a lot of options for people. People are making a lot of money. It's very, very hard to find what I would call maybe economic, I won't use the word cheap, but like, you know, economic labor, right? You're efficient, efficient. <laughs> yeah. You're oftentimes stretching your budgets, right? With the the level of salaries that I think the current labor market is, can bear. And so if the Fed uh, is able to do that, right? If they are able to slow the labor market down, like they have specifically said they want to, they will not lower this interest rate until they do see this labor market slowing down. It could really change the balance of power as far as the return to work, right? There's been lots of people that have, you know, kind of predicted that part part of this whole pushback against work, I think that a bit of what we're seeing is manager versus worker piece, right? If the workers have the power, then they don't 
they don't want to come into the office sometimes. They they want to be able to work from home, right? But if the companies and the managers get the power, I think there'll be less and less of an ability to push back, right? If you have three other job offers and then someone asks you to come into work, you're going to tell them no, that I'll just go work for somewhere else, but I don't have to, right? If you have no other job offers and your boss tells you you need to come into the office, well, now you're not going to tell them no, right? You're You're going to protect your job. You're going to do what you need to do. And so- that's the kind of a fascinating, you know, second order effect of this is I do think that if we see the labor market cool, like ho- the Fed is hoping, that might give an impetus for people to to get back into the office in a way that is only going to help the office industry. Almost sounds like a maybe a silver lining for office real estate in the and the supply side of the industry, but almost sounds like a a big conflict for government and, and, pol- and politicians because you know the they always want to have a uh, low unemployment numbers, but in this case we're talking about you know cooling it. So therefore, in theory, unemployment might go up a little bit. Oh yeah, they they predict unemployment to go. They, that's what they are looking at. They want unemployment to go up. It's it's a very weird time we're in in that in that sense, right? Wow. And unfortunately, there's you know there, there's kind of a fine line we have to walk here, and, and especially for the market, the office market, right? So if the jobs, you know, if the labor market struggles and you know starts to kind of cool down, and people people can come back to the office, that's great. Well, if it struggles too much and businesses start to struggle, well, now you're getting less companies that are growing that want office space, right? So you're kind of, you're hoping for a, you know, short term, maybe shock to the labor market, but you're hoping this doesn't turn into kind of a long-term, you know, economic downturn because that's never good for the office industry either, right? You don't want businesses to be struggling because now they're looking to cut costs, right? You have less business formations, you have less growth of large industries that are usually large occupiers. And so, there is that kind of fine line we, we would have to, to walk in order for this to truly be a benefit. Interesting times for sure. <laughs> I can't, you know, that to say the least, I suppose. Um, well, I used to leave the audience with a few personal questions for my guest, a little quick fire. I didn't do that this season because I just wanted to shake things up and change a little bit. So I've been doing some things here and there spontaneously. Well, first of all, we're going to put links to all of your social media, to the PropMoto website, your LinkedIn, your Twitter. But I noticed on your Twitter, and this is the little personal bit here, on your Twitter, you're often, obviously you share some of the work stuff, but really most of your Twitter, and hope maybe you tell me you don't put the link in, most of your Twitter's not so much professional work stuff, and it's more like Halloween and you know little quotes and tidbits. So um, I'm interested in your approach there. Yeah, I, I wish that I had an approach. I kind of just view Twitter as a bit of a kind of top of mind. I think that's how it's done best. I personally, uh, as as much as it might help me to be a little bit more work focused with my social media, I don't know. I find it a bit exhausting sometimes. I think that it takes the joy out of social media too. I think that and and then this goes to the our kind of publishing strategy too. You know, as much as we are a trade publication and we want to be professional and we want to help people and educate people, I think it's also there's value in being fun and interesting. And I don't think that just because people have to do this for work that it everything has to be so stuffy. Like I I try to you know lighten things up and tell say things that I personally just think are funny 
just because you know I, I I don't always think that you know we have to be when and this comes through very clearly in writing. I've always said that my least favorite kind of writing is the writing where people do where they're trying to sound smart. You know, when they're everything is like very stuffy and lots of big words and big complicated sentences. And, you know, it just doesn't sound genuine. I think that we are in an age of authenticity right now. The kids certainly get it. I mean, you look at, uh, I mean, you're, it's almost like it's, it's shocking how open uh, the kids are these days with their personal information on social media. But I think that it's because authenticity is is so valued now, right? And so... I personally think that if for listeners, for your own social media and also for your business, if all of you're doing is just shilling your expertise or your product, you're kind of doing social media wrong, right? And I think you're also kind of doing content wrong, right? You got to think of the value first and then, you know, maybe ask uh, after you've proved that value. Oh, that's sound advice. And I didn't have an expectation of what your answer was going to be. <laughs> uh, but I have to say, I've I, I bring this up because I've I've found your tweets when they've come through when I'm scrolling, refreshing, and often I'm laughing because you you put out some funny shit. <laughs> Thank you. Can I read one of them? Is that okay? Uh, sure, as long as it's uh, <laughs> PG, I guess. <laughs> it's 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 definitely PG. So it's just kind of funny. It says, "Who cares whether it's back in August? Who cares?" Whether people think a hot dog is a sandwich or not, the real argument is whether or not you think the dishwasher is a cabinet, which I think I can probably relate to sometimes. So uh, <laughs> you, you crack me up. Thank you. Yeah, no, I have some family that uh, that's just basically storage in their house now. And so I I personally like my dishwasher to wash my dishes. But hey, you know, teach that out. My thing is I wash it and then I get so busy with back to back days <laughs> when I'm not working from home and then I, and I leave it in and I was like, Oh shit, I got to empty the dishwasher. It, it does. Uh, it does play a dual function sometimes when you're busy. I, I get it. <laughs> Anyways, just want to leave this on a lighter note. So thank you again, Franco, for taking the time, sharing your insights and keep fighting the good fight on prop Boda. Yeah. Thank you. I'm happy to join. It's been really great. And yeah, I love the podcast. Keep up the good work. Thank you all for listening today. And until next time, Take care of yourself. And now, the final break to complete the story of how TSK helped Kellogg's create their workplace of the future. This time, in the words of Kellogg's. Which means, I have to mention, I had a chance to meet Kellogg's European Facilities Manager, Derek McDonald, on a recent trip to Manchester, England. Let's hear what he and his team have to say. We found that we had a natural attrition rate where people, once we opened the office, with no pressure, they started to come back in. Now when you walk in the door here, the flavour that you get, you see all the branding, you see how light and airy and spacious it is. There's so many different spaces to work in, not just standard desks. It just really, really works very well. When we saw it come to life, it was really interesting because you never really think it's going to look like it's going to in the picture, but it did. You definitely know it's a Kellogg's building when you walk into this floor and I love the reaction of everybody who comes here. It's nice to now be proud of a workspace. When you look at the design of the office, TSK really understood that from where our culture is to where we want it to be. We want the people mingling, we want the people to get to know each other and it's very evident in the layouts, the designs and when you look at our brands and our colours and our phone and our, our product, that's evident here. And that was great working with a team that understood what we were about, what we wanted. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and remember, fortune favours the bold.
Drumroll, please. P.S. If you want to find out about future-proofing your portfolio, head over to newflex.com. Making a high-quality podcast like this one takes a lot of work. That's a fact. But not when you hire a podcast company. With our White Glove experience, we handle everything for you. From guest outreach all the way through to publishing and promotion, we handle it all. You show up to hold great interviews and build relationships with your guests, and we take care of everything else. Podcasting is not just about the audience. Every podcast interview is the start of a new relationship. With a weekly podcast, you'd build relationships with 52 ideal partners or prospects through your podcast interviews over the next 12 months. Do you believe that 52 new relationships would help grow your business? We do. Contact jason at apodcastcompany.com and let's talk.